This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. My first guest for the morning has just joined us in the studio in the midst of a pretty intense 2016 Australian tour. She's already done uh, the Adelaide Fringe and uh, the Brisbane Powerhouse. Um, today, after this interview, almost straight away, she's heading off down to Hobart and then comes back to Melbourne for the Melbourne International Comedy Festival. Her name is Penny Arcade and she is a US performance legend. Hello, Penny. Welcome to Triple R. Hi, I was a Melbourne and Australian performance legend in 94, 95, but then I didn't get to come back all these years. How come? Um, I think because the people who were producing me were pretty much commercial producers, and I was touring my show Bitch, Dyke, Fag, Hag, Whore, which had a lot of strippers in it. This was before the ubiquitous burlesque scene existed it actually created the burlesque scene all over the world and i think that they made so much money with that show that they just couldn't imagine me doing a different show well i'm glad that somebody has had the sense to bring you back daniel clark and uh, it, as I said, it's been a busy tour and an interesting one for you because I know that some of the reviews you've had, so, uh, somebody, for example, has gone, well, oh, I like the new show. In retrospect, I probably liked the last show, although I kind of wasn't in the right headspace to appreciate it. Oh, that was it. Murray Bramwell. That was kind of a really... You know, let's face it. Let's talk about critics for a second. Sure, I'm okay. a critic, so uh, I'll, right. I'll, I'll, I'll prepare myself. Well, it's very simple. A critic can only bring who they are to a review. Right? Let's face it. Oscar Wilde said it best. Every review is an autobiography. So after the show, you know, people want to line up. They want to meet me. I love to meet people. This man comes up to me and he says, you know, actually, he goes, I love the show. I said, I'm happy you did. He said, uh, actually, I reviewed you 22 years ago and I was not generous. And I looked at him and I said, oh, I said, what's your name? I'll have to look it up. Well, apparently he thought that I, you know, remembered him or something like I'm going to remember. He said, well, apparently you read my review on stage. I said, yes, I have a tendency to do that. I like to make the audience laugh. (laughs) And so basically, what do we know? We know that he saw a show that had strippers in it, that had me be doing political comedy, a show in which I end up nude for the last 20 minutes of the show and whose last line is well I guess by now you probably forgot I have my clothes off blackout and he wasn't up to it so let's put it this way we've all been less than we want to be I think it was pretty impressive that he would write a review where he talked about the fact that he might not have gotten it (laughs) you know it's nice that he can admit that, but let's talk about the new show now, which is, amongst other things, looking at, I guess, history and pop culture and looking at pop culture in a historical concept, looking at kind of the trends over recent years and, and analysing them. Well, that- I think that what it, what it really fundamentally is is somebody who is sex, drugs and rock and roll, not pretending to be sex, drugs and rock and roll, giving my view as somebody who has been a teenager for 40 years, somebody who didn't get pushed into growing up, who's not growing up anytime soon, 
and my perspective of what I think happened, and particularly of what I think is being done to young people, because people are having their youth stolen from them and they don't even know it. What do you mean by that? I mean, young people start out being $100,000 in student debt. They want mortgages in their 20s. They want mortgages. They they don't knock around in their 20s. Tw- they can't. They believe that they can't knock around in their 20s. They want mortgages. They want careers. They eat in fancy restaurants with tablecloths. They drink $18 cocktails. They know about wine. All of those things are supposed to be for when you're old and not having sex constantly. So it's a, it is, it's cultural critique you can dance to. And I think one of the things that would be most interesting for a triple R audience is that this show has a nonstop soundtrack. It's the show 70 minutes long, 75 minutes long It has a hundred sound cues of the best music from the past 50 years that drives the show. It's not gratuitous. It's There's a reason for it because, you know, I am literally one of the people who originally said, Lou Reed wasn't the only person who said it. We all used to say it. My life was saved by rock and roll. So it's rock and roll comedy. It's like cultural criticism you can dance to. Your career has long focused on on outsiders. Yeah. Um, is And I'm presuming that's because that's your status, so you're reflecting on your own position in life to a well, degree. Well, I've been an outsider since I was 13 years old. I mean, the thing is, you don't choose that. You know, look, healthy, balanced people do not become performers. Let's get real with that. You know, you become a performer... And there's only two kinds of performers. They're the ones who want to be worshipped and adored. And then there's the ones who just want to be friends with everybody. But that's settled by the time you're nine years old. You can't change that. And I'm somebody who pretty much respects the audience. I don't think that I'm telling the audience anything they don't know. I'm just going further than they would go. So we're kind of in it together. So... The audiences. I mean, I have a I have a career because of the audience, not because of arts administrators. Because the audience demands to see me, because there isn't anybody else like me. Nobody else would want to do what I do. <laughs> now, for this tour, um, as I said, you, it's a, a fairly kind of broad national tour, but, yeah. and the show you're doing uh, performed at the Edinburgh Fringe, which is and it was a, a smash hit there. Well, this is it. Yeah. Yeah. In terms of making a show, tell us about your process in terms of what you this set show, out. This show was, like all my shows, it's developed live in front of the audience. I am probably the only person in the world that I know of that the public will come and pay to watch me go on stage with just ideas and come up with material because I'm an improviser. So even in my shows here... We had to cut 20 minutes out of the existence. We had to cut 20 minutes out of the show that we brought from Edinburgh and the Soho Theater in London because I'm imp- I improvised that much more material. And last night, my producer came over because he wanted to go over the script with me because he was sure that I wasn't sticking to the script. But actually, I am sticking to the script. It's just that I've improvised even more new material. And I know I'm going to improvise a lot of material 
in Melbourne. And so that's how um, my longtime collaborator, Steve Zettner, we've been working together 24 years, and he's originally a video producer. He still makes a lot of video. And uh, he and I embarked on this show. We did, um, we started out with four performances, and we started creating the show. And then we ended up all told, we did 13 live shows over a year period and in between that I would write on the material that I improvised and that's where the show comes from so the show is it's extremely live that's all I can say because I don't rehearse you know rehearsing performance or rehearsing comedy is just bad theater now speaking of bad theater uh the USA's (laughs) political scene at the moment is um, bad theatre. It really is bad theatre. In in fact, it's terrifying theatre in Mm. some ways. But does that, watching that, particularly from uh, an Australian perspective, perhaps seeing your your hometown, your home country filtered through an Australian news service, does that change the way you see the US? No. (laughs) The US is demented, problematic, idiotic. You know, my quintessential audience has always been Australian from the minute I landed here. And I'm not saying this to pander to the audience because, listeners, if I was a panderer, you would know who I was. I'd be one of the most famous artists that you'd ever heard of. I don't pander. The Australian audience is my quintessential audience because you have the ability to think of the British and you have the enthusiasm of Americans. The British are enthusiastic. Uh, the British are can think but lack enthusiasm and of course Americans are enthusiastic but can't think but I mean if you look at what's going on over there and really what's been going on in the states since Reagan I don't know if you read my piece on Trump but you know, everybody's going wild about Trump I mean Trump is an idiot granted but he's a symptom he is a symptom of a country that is a chauvinistic country we're raised to believe I'm immigrant Italian, even so, I'm an anarchist, I'm an outsider, I left school when I was 13, I've done everything except beg on the street and kill somebody, and yet even I am chauvinistic as an American. I want the dollar to be the strongest currency, I want America to be the greatest country, guess what, it's not. Other Americans can't deal with that, so they're the ones who are behind Trump, you know, it's about authoritarianism. They want – we're on a nonstop roll towards totalitarianism, not only in America, in the world in general. I mean, look at the lockout laws that are happening in Brisbane and um, well, Sydney. And New South Wales has just passed new laws kind of outlawing uh, political protests. So. Yeah, exactly. So, All right, so here we are in Melbourne, a Jewish city. Yes, I can say that. Yes, it's a Jewish city because it has a Jewish intellectual underpinnings. That's why you have a comedy festival. That's why you have a film festival. That's why you have the symphony. It's an intellectual city. Um, And I think it's a city of great connoisseurship. I think rivaled by by London in terms of the whole world. Where's the connoisseurship? Where's the audience that's the smartest audience? That is the audience that's been exposed to the highest quality of art and thinking, I would have to say it was Melbourne because you don't have great weather, you know. So um, 
I'm really excited. This show, Longing Less Longer, is is begging for that kind of audience, from a really smart audience. Not an educated audience, no, a smart audience. Now, are you hoping that the audience that come to see Longing Lasts Longer at the Spiegel Tent at Art Centre Melbourne will be coming because they are familiar with you and your work or because they're, they're going to be think they know of the people you know? Well, I mean, there's a, a few different reasons. I mean, I hope that by being on the show and people who are listening, tell people, tell your friends that you heard Penny Arcade today because some of them might be part of the... I don't know, 30,000 people in Melbourne who saw me perform and who love my work and might not know that I'm here because the Internet, of course, is not what everybody thinks it is. It doesn't make everybody know everything. We know less now than we knew 20 years ago. Word of mouth was much more powerful than the Internet ever was. I mean, there are people who know me because they know me through Andy Warhol because I was a Warhol superstar. There are people who know me because Jeff Buckley was a friend of mine and talked about my work a lot. He wrote about me in Rolling Stone and stuff like that. There are people who know me because of performance art, 80s New York performance art. There are people who know me because of my relationship with Quentin Crisp, who chose me as the woman he most identified with. When they asked him why... He said, most people would be horrified to be publicly identified by me as their soulmate, but Miss Arcade is impervious to embarrassment, which isn't true, but Quentin thought that. Um, And there's people who know me because of the art world, because of my relationship with many, many artists. I mean, Robert Maplethorpe, Patti Smith, Debbie Harry, um, Jack Smith, like tons of, you know, all those famous drag queens, Jackie, Candy, Holly. I mean, there's a lot of reasons why people know me because I'm old and I've been around for a long time, but nobody 25 can outrock me. Well, I'm looking forward to seeing you rocking out the stage. And uh, I'm all excited. I can't. I'm so... You have no idea how excited I am to be in Melbourne again. Well, it's lovely to have you here. I didn't yeah. get to see you back in the 90s, yeah. so I'm really looking forward to this opportunity to, to watch yeah. your work first. The thing is, it's, it's, is that my shows are hard to explain. It's experiential. It's like you're either experienced or you're not experienced. But I hope everybody who's listening will come around, come along. And don't forget to tell people that you heard me because... I want to see those people who I had such great shows with, 100 shows that I did here 20 years ago. I want to see those people. Penny Arcade's Longing Lasts Longer is on at the famous Spiegel Tent at Art Centre Melbourne. Ten shows only from the 24th of March until the 3rd of April as part of the Melbourne International Comedy Festival. You can book online at comedyfestival.com.au or you can grab that phone right now and call Ticketmaster 1300 to book to see the one and only Penny Arcade. Thank you for joining us here Thank at Triple R. Thank you so much. This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. It's 25 minutes past 10am. On Tuesday night, I went along to the Toffin Town for the launch of Next Wave Festival 2016. Next Wave, uh, I need to acknowledge, is the festival that gave me my, my start in the arts world back in 1998. So quite a while ago now, um, I was hired to look after the text and spoken word program at, for uh, the 2000 Festival. 
Thanks to Campion Descent, if he's listening, for giving me the job. Um, and consequently, uh, yeah, I've never quite left the arts world. So uh, it's nice to now catch up with the current artistic director of Next Wave Festival, Georgie March. Welcome to Triple R again. Thanks for having me. That's so nice to hear that you had your start on Next Wave. I love hearing that. It's a, I think between Next Wave and Fringe, those two festivals are the ones that have kind of given so many people a, a kickstart, a leg up, um, or an introduction to the to the arts industry world. So, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. How did you get your start in the arts? I I basically hung around performance space in Sydney until they gave me a job. Um, <laughs> yeah, I just was there a lot. Yeah. Um, and eventually I lucked out and got an amazing job there. I ended up working there for about three years. Yeah. yeah. And now, of course, working uh, at Next Wave Festival. And this program that was launched this week is your first Next Wave program. It certainly is. It's wildly exciting. Yeah. So there's a lot in it to unpack. But before we do, talk to us about the ethos and, and the focus of Next Wave. Um, it's... When I was there years and years and years ago, as we've established, um, it had a focus on young and emerging artists. And very quickly that phrase, young and emerging, became um, oversaturated and overused and I think it got retired. So how do you talk about Next Wave's target focus of, of artists these days? Well, I think it's really interesting whether you're talking about young and emerging or early career. Lots of those terms have really been handed down via government policy, I think, and by different sort of funding arrangements. And to tell you the truth, I'm not sure how useful they are to artists at all. Um, I like to think about that kind of artist that we work with as being... Next Wave is the, the moment to to be starting on that big ambitious idea, to take, a, to take the next step um, and to do something bigger or more ambitious than they have done before. And it usually means that artists are at the early stages of their careers, but that doesn't necessarily mean that they're, you know, 21 years old. There's all sorts of reasons why people might start their practices a bit later in life. Um, so we have a range... I mean, most of our artists are under 35, um, but we really think about it as at the beginning stages of their careers. Okay. Now, in terms of curating a program like this, one of the exciting things about Next Wave is the Kickstart program because uh, Next Wave is a biennial festival, so the festival only rolls around every two years. But in that off year, you've got this whole development program going on for the artists who are selected to take part in the festival. Yeah, and Kickstart is really the main one of those development programs, although every artist that we work with kind of is is a part of a development program in in one way or another. But Kickstart started in about May last year, and I think that's the last time I was here talking about yeah. it, actually. Um, and that is a series of intensive workshops um, with a cohort of artists that, um, that start thinking about their projects but also talk about their ideas and practices and their politics a lot more generally and we support them through giving them a producer for a year and a half and really helping them make those ambitious ideas happen. What are some of the uh, ambitious ideas that are being presented by the festival? Well, a couple of the ones being present that are being presented that were developed through Kickstart. Um, one is happening at Acme, and it's an audiovisual opera. 
um, that is called A97 and it's based on the idea that we've all been tricked and that the year 1997 actually never ended and that we are all still living in it right now, but the present day is an illusion. I can cope with that. 97 wasn't too bad a year for me, but... uh... There are lots of um, kind of... Lots of wild things um, that kind of came to some sort of confluence in 1997 um, that Daniel Yanach, who is the composer behind this work, could list to you for days. Um, but uh, there is an, also an amazing team of people working on that project. So um, Daniel is an incredible composer who might be probably be better known for his work with Atlanta Eek on her recent projects um, on pretty much all of her works actually and she'll be performing in this work which is a nice um, a nice little shift around for yeah. them um, as well as Sarah Byrne who's an amazing amazing singer and Autumn Royal a poet with also an incredible voice who are both um, embodying and speaking and singing the main role of the of the um, of the opera. Now, another of the Kickstart programs, uh, Kickstart uh, developed works, Mummy Dearest by uh, Annalisa Constable from New South Wales. We, everyone has a parent of some sort, whether you know them or not, uh, whether you are close to them or not. Um, we exist because of a, a particular biological imperative. So at some point, we have a mother even if we don't know her. So Mummy Dearest, an exploration of, of parenting, of relationships from a, a queer perspective, is that right? Yeah, so Annalise has had a pretty tricky relationship with her um, with her mum. There have been uh, mental health and addiction issues that have meant that Annalise was, didn't really feel like she had that much of a parent. She had to parent herself um, and... This is the first. Um, this is the first time where she's really digging into to that kind of um, to that history and that story for her. Um, she's also one of the funniest people that I've ever met in my life. Um, I've known her for quite a while, and she's always been one of those people that can that can just capture a room full of people with the most ridiculous story. So there are some pretty. There are some pretty wild and hilarious moments um, in that show, um, and it's really, it's kind, it's really an amazing mix of intense and heartbreaking stuff with really, really funny slapstick, um, completely Australian humour. Now, another of the shows that caught my eye, I, the title alone is eye-catching: um, "Ecosexual Bathhouse." Yeah. I want to know more. <laughs> it kind of is exactly what it sounds like. So if you think about the kind of... These artists are thinking about um, using the structure or the kind of the feeling of what it's like to, um, to, to go to a gay bathhouse or to a sort of diff- various sex-on-premises venues or something like that, um, but really thinking about... Ecosexuality as the so being uh, turned on by the planet, basically, yeah. Um, so 
There, um, there is an ecosexual manifesto that you can find online and read if you care to know more about it. I see Richard madly typing away already. Um, but these artists are um, both uh, very interested in sort of in the relationship of science with art, but also in terms of intimacy um, and experiences. And so they've, they're looking at this idea of well, if maybe if we can learn to love the earth, then maybe we can learn to save it. And so thinking about climate change, thinking about our relationship with our environment and how we can think about that in maybe a more intimate way. Okay, and I have just uh, opened up the Ecosex Manifesto. Um, the earth is our lover. We are madly, passionately and fiercely in love and we are grateful for this relationship each and every day. Uh, so easy to find online. I'm intrigued. Now, one of the things that really intrigues me about this year's Next Wave is the way that the festival has approached issues of access. And now this has become increasingly important for festivals over recent years and I've been really impressed with um, many of the developments festivals have made to say, okay, let's make sure that we have uh, an Auslan in interpreter present at every Q&A, for example, that is hosted, or uh, uh, that a certain number of sessions are uh, accessible f uh, for people in uh, with mobility issues or, and so forth. But Next Wave 2016 has really taken this idea and run with it, it would seem. Yeah, we really have. Um, and I've got to say that it's because there is a real commitment across the whole team to be to make ourselves more inclusive and to be removing barriers wherever we can. So it's happening in operations and in marketing and in among the producers. And I think that's the only way that we've been able to make all of the um, make all of the things happen that we have for this festival. But um, we are. Doing, um, having lots of events, Auslan interpreted. We've also um, done audio description training for a lot of our artists. Um, we've trained them on, well, trained them or introduced um, ideas about site reliance levels and listed them in the program as well. It's really about helping artists think about inclusivity and removing barriers as an artistic opportunity, as a strategy to make their work more interesting, to bring new audiences to it. It offers so many possibilities and it's really... Um, it feels like an artistic um, choice to be, to be doing this. And that artistic choice then also extends to the artistic programming, which is making sure that uh, the festival is not just accessible but representative of people as well. So um, a, a significant percentage of artists in the festival are women, a significant percentage are from uh, a First Nations in, or Indigenous background and so forth. Um, and the, the I guess the the aspect that delighted me when you mentioned it at the launch is the, the language classes in languages from the Kulin Nation, from here in Melbourne, because language and culture are intimately linked, uh, and so to preserve one, we have to strengthen the other. So talk to us about that particular programming aspect. Yeah, it's one that I'm really excited about. Um, we went to the Victorian Aboriginal Corporation for Languages about a year ago or more, and I, I said to them, I, wa I want to try and incorporate language into the festival in some way? Should we translate the whole website? Should we 
um, should we have half of the program guide in translated into Woiwurrung or Bunurong? Um, I had a million different ideas about ways that we could incorporate language into the program because I feel like the idea of lost or and found knowledge and the way that um, the way that language is a sort of is such a at the heart of culture, like you said, um, and. Through those conversations, we decided that um, to develop a series of workshops or events that sort of explore language but are also in response to festival projects. So they kind of weave their way through the festival in, in a way that extends on the ideas and concepts that are raised in the works. So if you would like to know more about what's on at Next Wave Festival 2016, including uh, the Writers in Residence program, which has a strong focus on writers with a disability, and the the broad range of uh, artistic projects being presented by the festival, you can, of course, jump online to the Next Wave website, just nextwave.org.au, which will take you through to the 2016 site by some kind of technological magic. Um, the festival is running from the 5th until the 22nd of May. So you've got a fair bit of time to pick up a program and start planning a festival schedule and try to squeeze in as many works as you can. But all of the projects in Next Wave will have a limited audience capacity and relatively short runs, given they are just being staged for the festival. So my advice to you is to book early and book a lot because the best thing about a festival is kind of seeing as much as you can. Don't just see one show and think you've done the festival. See eight or nine shows if you can so you can get an idea of the breadth and the range and the the dynamic nature of the work that's being presented for Next Wave 2016. Georgie, it's been lovely chatting to you. Thanks so much for having me and that's great advice. (laughs) Well, I look forward uh, myself to seeing as much as I can in Next Wave 2016. The website again, nextwave.org.au on from the 5th until the 22nd of May. Thanks so much for joining us. This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. talk now about the latest production on at Red Stitch Actors Theatre, Splendour, which uh, is previewing at the moment and opening tomorrow night. Uh, So tonight is the final preview before the production opens. Joining us in the studio, actors Rosie Lockhart and Olivia Monticello. Welcome to you both. Thank you, Richard. Thank you. So, um, Rosie, I'm going to get you to start by telling us a little bit about the play. It's by uh, Abby Morgan. It's the Australian premiere. Yeah, so Abby Morgan is a British uh, playwright and screenwriter um, and she actually wrote Splendour back in two- year 2000. So the play is actually 15 years old. It's taken a while to get here. Yeah. Um, it did just most recently have a production last year in London um, to very high acclaim. Um, and Abby Morgan has found recent um, fame, I guess, in her screenwriting for Suffragette, The Iron Lady and I think most recently a TV series called The R- River. Um, but Splendour is a play um, which features four women who are basically on stage for the entire time um, and it's set in an opulent uh, palace um, office type situation um, and we've set it in an Eastern European sort of country um, and there is the wife of a dictator there is her best friend there is a photographer, an international journalist and an interpreter um, 
by the name of Gilma, who Olivia plays. I play Catherine, the photographer. And we're basically there waiting for the husband to return. Now, I've read some criticism of the play which says a character is missing, the dictator himself. Um, but, Olivia, would, do you think that's an irrelevant criticism, that the play works perfectly well without that character because it's about his absence in some ways? It is about his absence and I'd also say that it's about four women and their relationship to power and their relationship to political and personal power and that is something that Abby Morgan talks about a lot through her um, screenwriting and in this play. Um, and I'd say... You know, that I actually like that we don't see this man. We see everything around him. We don't need that figure. We get it, I think. Yeah. yeah. Now, now, it's interesting that, that she is so interested in women, power and politics. Having I haven't seen Suffrage yet, uh, but I do want to catch up with it at some stage. I found her, um, the, her screenplay for The Iron Lady problematic, I guess, in that it... it and it's partially my own politics. I'm going, I don't want to sympathise with Margaret Thatcher. <laughs> kind of, but, but yet she, she turned that woman into a sympathetic figure in the film in some ways. How sympathetic are her characters in this play? Ah, great question. Um, you know, it's really complex. These four women are very different women to each other and um, there's a lot of range, I think, for each of them as well. Uh, Micheline, who is play, is, plays the dictator's wife um, by the wonderful Belinda McClory, um, who's, you know, a fantastic theatre and um, film actress here in Australia and... and beyond she was in the matrix and dr blake and all sorts of wonderful things but she you know she's she's got this great challenge of playing this woman who she's actually quite oh i mean i don't even want to describe her because you know she's sort of evil and manipulative and mean but loving and uh, you know you sort of see all these sides to to the way that she behaves both politically and personally with these people in the room um and I understand she uses repetition to a degree in the script, kind of replaying kind of scenes and, and, and stories. So what's the purpose of that, do you think? Um, well, the... Oh, sorry, maybe Liv, you can answer that one. Oh, that's, oh well, OK, sure. <laughs> um, <laughs> so I think the form of the play uh, really actually leads back to that question that you just asked, Rosie, about sympathy as well. Because what Abby Morgan does with the form and the repetition is she kind of gives us this filmic quality where she, she zooms in on a character and we get their point of view and we are able to follow them on their journey and sympathise with them. And then she zooms out and we get a scene and, and, and the play's really filmic in that way because you can follow individuals and then you can follow the story and you get these four narratives of these women who are in a really difficult position on the border of a revolution, really. It's really exciting. <laughs> it's interesting that you say cinematic because I um, up, uh, up in Sydney in January I saw uh, Reg Cribb's latest play, and Reg Cribb, an Australian playwright who writes a lot for the stage, but is now also then adapting those plays for the screen. And it almost seems sometimes as if he's really got a screenplay in mind, but he's just working out his ideas on the stage first, and then it becomes a more refined version of a film. Does this feel like a, a frustrated screenplay, or does it breathe and live? as itself as a play. I think it breathes and lives itself as a play, but maybe I'm biased. <laughs> I think because it's so much about about their presence in, in this environment as well and because we're all there for the entire time waiting, essentially, for this person to return, um, 
it's the dynamics of of those power shifts in the room all at one time in front of the of the magic of a live audience that really makes makes this narrative sort of sing i think and it also sounds like it's a uh, a great play uh in that uh i still often see uh plays in which there's maybe one female character and four men, for example. So to have a play with four uh, very, very different and diverse female characters seems like a a great opportunity as well, something to really sink your teeth into. Absolutely. And we've got um, Jenny Kemp is our director at the helm and she's just absolutely wonderful. Um, And she's sort of... She's really interested in working with women and with, you know, plays that deal with sort of political issues and... um, so having having her sort of fine hand over over the the show has been a real gift as well. And how have you found the uh, the the process moving from rehearsal room to to preview mode now? Because as I said, you've already done two previews this week. Kind of uh, mm. two Tuesday and Wednesday. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. that's correct. Yeah. yeah, I think the previews have gone really well so far, and we you know. You always discover so much with an audience. You can only do so much in the rehearsal room and then you get out and you present it and um, the story uh, really comes alive once you, have, once you have those live bodies in the space and it's really exciting and it's, uh, it, was, it was quite a vocal audience the last two nights. It has been quite a vocal audience because uh, there's a lot of, you know, there's, there's some funny moments in the play but there's also some really tense moments and we get... Sort of uh, sounds, and it's and it's wonderful. It's it's Red Stitch is such an intimate space, and because we are so close, and because this play doesn't really allow for you know, um, you kind of can't really drift off. We're there, we're in your face, and um, yeah, it's it's really great. When you say you discover so much moving into a into a venue with a live audience, what do you discover apart from perhaps the occasional laugh or, or funny line that you yourselves hadn't done? perhaps uh, anticipated there would be laughter at. So you have to pause and stop and think, oh, they found that funny. <laughs> and, and keep going. What else do you gain from that, from that shift from in, to in front, being in front of an audience? What do you discover about the play that you weren't previously aware of? Um, for me, the, the beautiful thing about theatre is that the audience is essentially another character. You know, if you would completely ignore your audience, then you're not in the room with them. You're not being authentic and... and um, at one with a the story and with the given circumstances of actually being in front of a crowd of people who are living and breathing and thinking and um, so you discover things that are I don't know that you just did, don't consider or it's just about being with them I think um, and and that's when you're really present and that's when it's really alive and and sometimes you don't really even can't even articulate it because it's so much about that moment and then you know that moment's gone and then we're on to the next one um but you know the we've had really full previews i think this weekend's completely sold out um so to have like these full audiences of people just wanting to experience this show is a real gift for us and have you had much contact or conversation with the the playwright herself during the rehearsal process? Because one of the things that I that is often the case with Red Stitch that I've noticed in the past, particularly when it's the Australian premiere of a work, mm-hmm. that there often seems to be dialogue and engagement with the writer saying, "Oh, look, if you need to shift something so it makes sense to an Australian audience, please do," and so forth. Has there been? Have you had any contact or any communication, or has your director had any communication? Um, I play? don't. I don't believe so. 
I don't believe so. Um, I'm sure if there was a real need to, they would have reached out to her. Um, but no, I don't. I don't think so. Um, and also, you know, because she's quite an established writer as well. Like, and often, you know, with new writers or emerging writers, they're more open to that yeah. because they have the time and and the um, sort of. And if it's the the first international production of their play, for example, I'm sure they'd be like, oh, I want to kind of like, <laughs> yeah, I want to be, I want to be there. I can't. Yeah. So quick, s- s- set up Skype in the corner or something. But, yeah. Yeah. But, you know, we've dug up this play from 15 years ago and, and, you know, she's probably like, oh, that's great, that's getting another life, but I'm going to keep writing my TV series. Why do you think it's taken 15 years since its premiere at, what, Edinburgh Fringe or something 15 years ago to, to, to get an Australian, like a Melbourne season? I don't know. Belinda found the play, though, didn't yeah. she? Belinda found the play and brought it to Red Stitch and said, well, this is what I've been told, and said, you have uh, wonderful female actors in your company. You guys should do this play. So I don't know how she found it or where. I think she just had a copy of one of her... of, her, of the play. She just had, a, like, a bit of an anthology of Abby Morgan plays. And then... You know, so she gave it to Ella and she, she gave it to Brett and then Ella gave it to the ensemble and we read it. And and as we do with programming at Red Stitch, we read a lot of plays and then as an ensemble we decide what to program. Um, and so we decided to program Splendour and then we were like, well, does Belinda want to be in it? So we, you know, went back to her and said, listen, we're going to program it, do you want to be in it? And she had a bit of a think about it and came back and said, yes, I actually have to play this role. I have to do this play. Um, and... And it's sort of amazing. And I know that Jenny Kemp, she just thinks that Abby was really ahead of her time with this play. It's incredibly relevant in terms of our like global political landscape at the moment, with uh, <laughs> crisis and war happening seemingly everywhere, and then also with the um, American political campaigns going on at the moment as well. Um, you know, it's incredibly interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, the play is Splendour and it's on at Red Stitch Actors Theatre. Uh, the final preview tonight at 8pm uh, and then the season runs proper through until the 16th of April. Uh, Wednesdays to Saturdays at 8pm. There's a Saturday matinee at 3pm but not this Saturday the 19th or the 26th of March, I believe, according to my notes. Um, and Sunday is at 6.30pm. Tickets are between range from 20 bucks to 45 bucks great value for money you can book online at redstitch.net or you can pick up the phone and call 95338083 if you'd like to get along to splendor at redstitch actors theater at the rear of two chapel street in st kilda east olivia and rosie thank you very much for joining us here at triple r and chookers of the season thanks Thanks. this has been a podcast from three triple r 102.7 fm in melbourne truly independent community radio Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.